our enemies can put us wherever they want. It is God, ultimately, who ordains and disposes our destiny. God knew what he was doing when he put Joseph in Potiphar's house. And he knew what he was doing when he put Joseph in the prison. He was training Joseph and testing him. He was pruning Joseph and preparing him. This wasn't about Potiphar or his wife or the jailer or the prisoners. This was about the mission and purpose of Joseph's life. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God ordains and disposes our destiny. He puts us where he wants us in order to train us and prepare us for our life and mission. I love that idea. And it arises very naturally out of the two chapters that we're going to be taking a look at today. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 39. There is a lot going on in this chapter. You could read this chapter as an object lesson in resisting temptation. You could read it as an example of how God purifies and prepares his people. Or you could read it as a further illustration of the blessing that is carried within Abraham's line. All of that is true. And all of that commends repeated telling and hearing of this story by God's people. Towards that end, we begin reading the text at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, the key line in that paragraph, obviously, is in the first part of verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Now, that's not a promise. It's a statement of fact. God was with Joseph, and as a result, he became successful. Potiphar noticed that. This this non-Yahwist man Notice that Joseph was blessed because Yahweh, the Lord, was with him, just like Abimelech and Phicol had noticed it back in Genesis chapter 21. People can see the presence of God in the line of Abraham, and wise people want to get on the right side of that. Victor Hamilton puts it this way. He says, this verse must be read as fulfillment of Genesis 12 verse 3a, I will bless those who bless you. Just as Yahweh blessed Laban because of Jacob, he now blesses Potiphar because of Joseph. Verse 6 continues. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. 
and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Now, it's one thing to resist a temptation once, but Joseph resists the advances of this woman day after day after day. We think, for example, of Samson, who was worn down by the persistence of his first uh, fiance, and then later by his lover Delilah. By contrast, Joseph is faithful day after day after day. We ought to be interested in that. Faithfulness over the long haul is what we should all aspire to as God's people. One of the things we notice in the story is that Joseph is keeping this woman at a safe distance. The text says that she wanted him to lie with her, which of course is a euphemism for have sex with her. But the Bible says that he would not even be with her. Joseph appears to have kept some version of the Billy Graham rule, or as it is sometimes called now, the Mike Pence rule. Listen, I understand. It might seem prudish to avoid being alone with a person of the opposite sex, but it has always been something that wise and faithful people consider carefully. If you put two hot-blooded, healthy, opposite-sex human beings in a room together without any other people, somebody in that room is going to be thinking about sex, and maybe both somebodies. And so better simply not to be there. Better to maintain a safe distance. Better never to get those engines started. My grandmother used to say, a stitch in time saves nine, which means that it's always better to solve your problems when they are small. If you leave them till they're big, then they might be beyond your ability to control. That's what Joseph seems to understand here. He is just trying to avoid intimate contact with her because he doesn't trust her and he doesn't trust himself to draw the line. Once the passions get up, that line can be very hard to see. There's a great deal of practical wisdom here with respect to managing sexual temptation. However, despite all of Joseph's wise and very prudent measures, things do eventually come to a head. Verse 11 says, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Sometimes, despite your best efforts, you do find yourself in a tempting situation. And here, Joseph does the right thing. He runs away. The Apostle Paul tells young Timothy to do the same thing in the New Testament. He says, flee also youthful lust, 2 Timothy 2.22. Run away. If you're in a dangerous moral situation, don't try and muscle through it. Run away. Just exit the situation. Get out. If you are struggling to control yourself in a dating situation, then just don't go down in that basement to watch Netflix. Just run away. If you're struggling to control your substance abuse addiction, then don't go to that get-together where you know that drugs or alcohol will be present. Run away. 
You wouldn't wander through the forest late at night, and neither should you put yourself at the mercy of your spiritual and moral adversaries who want nothing better than to drag you off the path of life and maul, molest, and destroy you. Stay away. Run away. Give sin and temptation as wide a berth as you are able. Verse 13 says, And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, And he was there in prison. Now, here we come to the delicate issue of false sexual allegations. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of sexually harassing her. This is obviously a very sensitive issue in our day and age. I recently wrote an article called Threading the Me Too Needle. Because on the one hand, I think we need to make it as easy as possible for women to report any and all incidents of sexual abuse, and we need to make sure that the system is fair and unbiased towards vulnerable people, particularly women and children. However, simultaneous to that, we must also maintain the principles of justice and fairness that undergird any safe and free society. That means maintaining a certain standard of evidence and insisting on a trial by impartial judges, the right to appeal and the presumption of innocence because false accusations do happen. And when they happen, they should be prosecuted vigorously. The Bible says, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 20. The Bible seems to be saying here that we should diligently investigate the claims made by plaintiffs, and if it is determined that an accusation has been falsely and maliciously made, then we should prosecute that person vigorously so as to make an example of them and to put the fear of God into anyone who would ever think of doing the same. I think that's an important principle. There is no justice without truth. There is nothing so damaging to the cause of justice as false and malicious accusation. Listen, the point is this, for our purposes, sometimes even when you do everything right, because the world is wrong, and because it is filled with fallen people who get angry and vindictive and who are willing to lie and deceive, sometimes even when you're righteous, you'll be accused of doing wicked things, and you'll be treated unfairly. It happened to Joseph, it happened to Jesus, and it might happen to you. Verse 21 says, but, but the Lord was with Joseph 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, that's the key line in the story. God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, and God was with Joseph in Potiphar's prison. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what others do to you. What matters is whether you have the favor and blessing of the Lord, and Joseph does. And because he does, he prospers. What the world pushes down, God raises up. Thanks be to God. Verse 22 says, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Do you hear the symmetry there? Verses 22 to 23 sound almost exactly the same as verses 3 to 6. People recognized the hand of the Lord on Joseph, and they positioned themselves to prosper accordingly. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, let people see the presence of the Lord in your life. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, trust that the Lord knows how to put you where you need to be. Notice the wordplay here. In verse 20 it says, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. But then in verse 22, it says, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge. And why did he do that? Because God was with him. Our enemies can put us wherever they want. It is God ultimately who ordains and disposes our destiny. God knew what he was doing when he put Joseph in Potiphar's house. And he knew what he was doing when he put Joseph in the prison. He was training Joseph and testing him. He was pruning Joseph and preparing him. This wasn't about Potiphar or his wife or the jailer or the prisoners. This was about the mission and purpose of Joseph's life. This was about the task that God had and the means for which God was blessing him in the first place. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, the good seed is buried deeper, still to push upward. The servant is faithful in a little, trains for authority in much. Closed quote. God presses us down to raise us up. He qualifies us through long and humble service in quiet and obscure locations. Just like Moses herding sheep for 40 years in the desert, so Joseph in Potiphar's house and in Potiphar's prison. This is where the servants of the Lord learn their business. God has his own school and his own method of preparation. He writes the curriculum and he gives the test. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Thanks be to God. Well, chapter 39 was a relatively short chapter, so we're going to transition right into chapter 40 today for the conclusion of our story. Pastor Paul, let's hand it right back over to you. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 40. In the previous episode, we were talking about how God purifies and prepares his people. Here, the emphasis is on how God promotes his people. And of course, that sequence is very important. God purifies and prepares before he promotes. He enrolls us in the school of affliction, in order to prepare us for the good works which he has prepared in advance 
to be our way of life. And that's what we see here. In this chapter, we see God orchestrating circumstances by which Joseph will be promoted out of the prison and right into the prime minister's office. His rise to position and prominence parallels, in many respects, the rise of Daniel in Babylon, which, of course, happens many generations later in the narrative timeline. But it is helpful for us to notice the similarities. We want to learn who God is, and we want to understand how God works. So, without further ado, let's read the story. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now, I suspect that most of us have a hard time picturing this. Maybe we've seen a Joseph movie or play, or maybe we just have Shawshank Redemption on the brain, but it is helpful here to notice the actual details of the text. Joseph is not serving his time in some sort of supermax institutional setting. He is in some sort of prison that is attached to the house of the captain of the guard. Well, the captain of the guard is Potiphar. We know that because we read that we read that in chapter 39, verse 1, which says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Right? So Potiphar was in charge of Pharaoh's officials. He was like a chief steward. So he was the manager of all the palace servants and officials. The two new prisoners were high-ranking palace servants. The cupbearer was probably the guy who was in charge of purchasing and serving all the wine for state functions and for Pharaoh's private meals. The baker was obviously in charge of all the breads, pies, desserts, etc. that would have been served at state functions and in private settings. Therefore, obviously having offended the king in some way, they are remanded into Potiphar's custody until their fate can be decided. So this is a holding cell for household servants. This is not Rikers Island prison. Victor Hamilton puts it this way. He says, the prison in which the chief butler and baker are detained would be a room attached to Potiphar's house. Confinement is probably no more than house arrest, but prison is prison, and it is bad enough that Joseph refers to it as a dungeon, closed quote. So, this is bad. No one is saying it isn't, but it's not supermax. There are probably only a handful of detainees, and Joseph is placed in charge of these two new prisoners. He is over them, but he's also serving them, all of which seems to indicate that Potiphar likely had some doubts about the accusations that had been made against Joseph. But if a man has to choose between his wife and his servant, he's going to choose his wife. And that seems to be what Potiphar is doing here. We jump back into the story at verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, 
and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, notice here how Joseph says the same thing as Daniel will say when he is called upon to interpret a dream. In Daniel chapter 2, when the king had a dream but couldn't remember the details and had no idea what it meant, Daniel was brought in after every wise man of the Babylonians had failed. And he said this, Daniel 2, 27 to 29, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And he told him the dream and its interpretation. Daniel was careful not to portray himself as a wise man or as in some way the source of the particular insight. Daniel wanted it to be known that interpretations come from God. Notice that. God delights to promote people who are eager to give him glory. Notice this also. Joseph believes that the dreams have a meaning and a purpose. He doesn't say to the Egyptians, listen, you guys are pagans to begin with, and dreams are very subjective and easily abused by fakes and charlatans. No, he assumes that the dreams have meaning because Joseph believes in the sovereignty of God. Again, let me quote from Hamilton again. He says, There are two factors here at work in the story. One is Joseph's ability to interpret the happenings in his life and in that of his family as illustrative of God's control and use of otherwise inscrutable events. The second is Joseph's conviction about God's control every time he interprets a dream. Are you hearing that? Joseph believes that God is involved, and Joseph believes that God is in charge. Therefore, he looks at everything going on in his life, and he assumes it has a meaning. And that, of course, extends to dreams. Listen, I will tell you this. I think it is a weird situation that most of the people in the church today who believe in God's sovereignty tend to dismiss the possibility that dreams might have meaning and significance. Now, of course, I know why this is. We are currently busy overreacting to the charismatic excesses of the 1980s and 90s, and we aren't finished being horribly embarrassed. But surely, if we believe that God is the ultimate first cause of everything, then we would be inclined to think that if we have a dream, then it might mean something or portend something we should pay attention to. Now, of course, no one is saying that you should treat dreams as authoritative. Remember, Joseph's dream left out so many important details that it would have been entirely incapable of serving as a basis for any kind of life choice or decision-making process. But he had the wisdom, at least, to think about it, to remember it. That's all I'm saying. If you believe that God is in charge of everything then you look for significance in the seemingly insignificant and inscrutable details of life. That's what I'm saying, and that's what we are seeing in this story. Verse 9 says, So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, 
and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Now, even in English, this is clearly a dream about threes. There are three vines on the branches. There are three main verbs in the actions, budded, shot forth, and ripened. Pharaoh's name is mentioned three times, and the cupbearer's response is described in three movements. I took, I pressed, I placed. There's something going on with the number three here. And Joseph spots that. Verse 12 says, Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph doesn't pray about the interpretation. He just gives it trusting that God is using this in order to promote him out of the dungeon, out of the pit. And so he asks the cupbearer to remember him. Verse 16 says, When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Once again, Joseph doesn't pray about the interpretation. He just speaks the interpretation that comes to his mind. Birds eating the cakes you're trying to deliver to Pharaoh does seem like an ominous sign. And the recurrence of the three theme suggests some kind of connection with the timing of the first dream. But unlike the first dream, the outcome is not favorable. The baker will be executed in three days' time. Verse 20 says, On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. There's a bit of wordplay there where lifted up the head can mean two different things, obviously. Verse 21. He restored the chief cupbearer to his chief position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph was right right? God was in this. God had, obviously, authored the dreams and used them to exalt Joseph in the eyes of the cupbearer who had now been restored to Pharaoh's inner circle. The cupbearer had not yet remembered Joseph, but Joseph must be confident now that God has begun to move. We'll pick up the story in chapter 41. Thanks be to God. Amen. God knows how to prune, how to prepare, and how to promote his people. He knows the way we take, and when he has tried us, we shall come forth as gold. I'm loving that theme, and I look forward to hearing more about that in the days and weeks to come. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning 
as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.